All right, as you're having a seat, please turn with me to James chapter 4. A violent scene erupted Sunday between a group of monks gathered at what millions consider one of the holiest places on earth. This was the scene at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre as Armenian and Greek Orthodox monks began to shove and push one another. The incident flared up as the Armenian monks began a procession commemorating the 4th century discovery of the cross believed to have been used to crucify Jesus. The Greeks objected, saying the march should not begin without one of their monks present. That's when this scene broke out. The church, located in Jerusalem's old city, marks the traditional site of Jesus' crucifixion, burial, and resurrection. Two clergymen were arrested and questioned following the incident. For MSNBC.com, I'm Dara Brown. So there you go. How about that? <laughs> I was just thinking I'm glad no one recorded uh, our Grace Bible Church staff meeting last week. Um, no, I'm just kidding. We, we weren't wearing robes. Um, part. But yeah, so I, I showed that uh, just video quickly to our worship team uh, before the service, and one of them sarcastically said, yeah, way to represent, right? Man, uh, I, I wonder how those monks felt the week after when they realized that this had been recorded and now the whole world had watched them getting into a brawl uh, where they believed their Savior was buried after suffering a cruel death and washing his disciples' feet and showing them an example of sacrificial service, right? Um, way to represent. Uh, what displays Jesus through us to the world Jesus said, is the way that we love one another, right? And what undermines our testimony is when our relationships look just like the relationships of the people in the world. And I imagine that these, these folks felt a, a bit of shame and guilt over their conflict, but may still to this day not have resolved it, right? There's, there's conflict and there's chaos uh, in a lot of our relationships, and we don't want that. We want to live at peace. We want peace in our hearts. We want peace in our relationships. So what's, what's wrong? What's the problem here? James is going to tell us in James chapter 4 that the problem uh, is you. Uh, and it's me, it's, it's us. James is going to tell us that the problem is that we have, we have a divided heart and we have disloyal, uh, disordered loves and affections. Uh, we love God, but we also love the world. And as a result, there's, there's conflict internally that pours out externally into our relationships. And so this morning, James 4 is kind of going to be, it's going to be a bad news, good news message. Uh, the bad news is that we are deeply broken. There's something deeply wrong inside of us in our hearts. The good news is God's grace, grace can overcome that and can heal our hearts and transform our hearts inside of us and also in our relationships. So good, bad news, good news. We're going to start this morning, though, with the bad news. James chapter 4, I want you to read with me in verse 1. James writes, what is the source of of quarrels and conflicts among you. Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. James says, here's the bad news. Divided hearts destroy our relationships, and we have divided hearts. Now, before we actually get into the text, uh, I, do, I have one announcement that I need to make. Uh, my announcement is this, um, I am now uh, cat-free in 2023, okay? 
So I know for those who've been around for a while, this is a really beautiful thing. It's quite an accomplishment. I don't have any cats that run through my house when I open the door. I don't have any cats who are living in the garage. I don't have any stray cats that my family tells me I'm somehow obligated to feed in the name of Jesus. I don't have any of that, right? I'm cat-free in 2023. I do, however, so if you want to like send me postcards and congratulatory emails or texts, that's awesome. Um, I do, however, now own a dog. The dog's, uh, the dog's name is Tristy's dog. I don't want to even, I don't even honor it with its name. It's just, it's just Tristy's dog. I own a dog. Uh, Tristy loves her dog. I mean, like, loves her dog. I bought her a dog because she wanted a dog. She's always wanted a dog. She has a dog now. She loves her dog. And the crazy thing is, she actually thinks her dog loves her back. I'm not, seriously, like, you know, her dog comes up to her and is all affectionate. She thinks that her dog actually loves her, but her dog doesn't love her. Her dog is just showing affection because the dog wants something from her. Because her dog is selfish, self-centered, self-absorbed. Because that's what dogs are. They're completely self-centered creatures. It's just a dog, right? That's what it is. And before you start casting aspersion, I know you're hissing against her dog, not me. I know that. <laughs> before you start hissing at my wife's dog, you're just like her. You're self-centered, you're self-absorbed, you're selfish, you think of yourself. That's the bad news. In fact, there's a repeated word in those three verses that I just read you, and you remember what it is? Did you see it? It's you. You, 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 your. James says, here's the problem. The problem is your selfish pleasures. You think about you. You are born into this world self-centered. You're born into this world believing that the best path in life is getting your pleasures, and you're going to figure out a way to do it any way you possibly can. You're going to chase after it. And then you believe in Jesus Christ, and the Spirit of God comes and lives inside of you, and then you know what? All of a sudden, there's conflict. God's Spirit is waging war with your pleasures, and you're, you're torn apart. There's an internal conflict that eventually pours its way out into external conflict in your relationship. James says the problem is your pleasures. The word he uses there is the word from which we get hedonism. We are hedonists. And we are stubbornly, persistently believing that we can figure out life in a way better than what God has offered. But then we also want God. And so there's a conflict that's going on inside of us. Listen to how he describes it. Verse 1, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasure that wages war in your members, that is, inside of you? It wages war in your members. Conflict inside. The apostle Paul coined a, a word to describe this. He calls it the flesh. That persistent commitment to make life the best it can be apart from God or in addition to what God has offered. It's your flesh. So notice how he describes what's happening internally inside of us in Galatians 5. He says, the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit sets its desire against the flesh for these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. What are the things that you please? Both. You kind of want God's way, but you kind of want your own way. And as a result, 
Paul says, inside of the follower of Jesus, there is an internal battle that is going on that pours out into our relationships and creates conflict in our relationships. Verse 2, you lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. There are things that you feel like you lack in life and you've got to go after them and you can't get them and so you get angry and you quarrel and you fight. James even says you commit murder. I don't think he's saying that they were literally a bunch of murderers and he's saying, hey, a little less murder. That's not, that's not what's going on here. I think uh, it's similar to what John said, 1 John chapter 3, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Remember uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is getting to the heart of the matter and he says, whoever hates his brother in his heart, it's as if he's committed murder in his heart. Whoever lusts after a woman has committed adultery in his heart. Jesus was getting to the heart of the matter and James and John were both familiar with this sermon and they're echoing these themes that there's something deeply broken in our heart and what's broken is that we have a, a divided heart. We want to love God but we also kind of love the world. There was a really uh, interesting study that was released about a week and a half ago from uh, CDC, Centers for Disease Controls, and articles are just being starting to pour out about this data. Um, it, one of the things that the data was looking at is the, the effect of social media on teenagers, specifically teenage girls. Now, it's, it's focused on teenage girls, but the principles apply much more broadly to everyone. And what's interesting is also is that uh, hundreds of studies have been done already on the effect of social media on us, on all of us. But what they've been doing is just showing correlation between certain effects, characteristics, and not causation. But what the CDC is saying now is that there's a cause and effect relationship between social media and increased levels of anxiety, depression, and suicidal ideation. It's focused on teenage girls, but it applies to every single one of us. And what's interesting is this doesn't apply just generally uh, to internet usage, right? I mean, you can watch uh, Netflix all day, every day, and you're going to be dumber, but you're not necessarily going to be more depressed and more anxious and more likely to consider suicide. Uh, according to the data uh, in the last 10 years, suicidal ideation, like uh, young teenage girls seriously considering um, ending their life by suicide, has increased from 20% to 30%, 57%, 57 of teenage girls report that they feel a persistent and prolonged, continuous feeling of sadness and despair, 57%. And it says it is directly caused by social media, why? Because social media tells you your life is not nearly as good as every single person around you in the world that you know, okay? Your life is not nearly as good as theirs. You're not having as much fun. You're not as pretty. You're not as handsome. You don't go on as good of trips. Your friendships aren't as deep. You don't have as nice a dog or as nice a cat or as nice, you, you, everything. There's a lack in your life. There's a deficit in your life. And everybody else has all these things and you don't have all these things. You are lacking. You need what they don't have. In other words, social media is fanning that worst part of our broken flesh that is inside of us. 
believing that we can figure out life in a better way than what God has given us in this moment. We are lacking, and so we are grasping. So think about it. If I, if I think that I'm lacking and you think that you are lacking and we come together in a relationship, what are we going to do? We're going to take from one another because you're lacking and I'm lacking and we come together to get something from the other person that the other person feels like they don't have to give and we have conflict, we have tension, we have strife, we have chaos in our relationships. Remember in James chapter 1 how James described maturity. He said, my goal for you is that you would be uh, mature, complete, whole, lacking in nothing. And if you feel like you're lacking in something, just ask God for his wisdom. And you will be complete. Everything that God has to offer, you will make your life complete. In other words, James saying, here's another way to think about maturity. Maturity is that you sense you are lacking in nothing. Your life right now, even if you're going through the valley of the shadow of death, you lack nothing. Remember how Psalm 23 began? Because the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. Even if I'm suffering and struggling and going through the deepest of trials, no one out there has a better life than me because all that I need for a life that is filled with peace and joy and fulfillment, God has given me in Christ. Even if I'm suffering physically, even if I'm suffering with poverty in my job, even if I'm suffering in my relationships, I lack nothing. I lack nothing. But if I think I lack and you think you lack and we come together, we are both going to be taking from one another and our internal conflict will become an external conflict and it will pour out into our relationships and we're going to have unhealthy, strife-filled, conflict-filled relationships because our hearts are divided. We are not believing that what God has given us is actually enough for us. So notice how James describes us in verse four. He says, you adulteresses. Man, that's really rude. <laughs> Can you imagine? Imagine just walking up to a friend and, wow, you adulterous. Anybody ever read um, how to, Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People? It's a classic old book. It's just, it's very interesting. You should, you should read it at some point in time. What's interesting to me is that there's not a chapter that um, says, begin a conversation with an insult, right? And this is where James is. He's just like, boom, man. He just tags them, you adulteresses. What's he talking about? You know, I, I would um, like to confess to you that I don't actually like thinking of myself negatively. I don't know about you, but I don't like to, I prefer to not think of myself negatively. Um, I don't, I'm not rushing to memorize James 4, verse 4, and meditate upon this statement, Brian, you adulteress. Uh, I would rather memorize verses that make me feel hopeful and positive and confident but myself, I want to think well of myself. Don't you want to think well of yourself? Well, uh, I would argue that James is uh, not trying to, in a sense, make us just feel negative about ourselves. He's trying to get us to live in reality. He's just saying something that's true, maybe hard to hear, but true. And I would argue that one of the most dangerous things that's, that we see as a cultural trend right now is this, this profound commitment to affirmation. So we have to affirm, we have a moral obligation to affirm everyone. And what that's rooted in is it's rooted in an anthropology or, or an understanding of the nature of man that's become really deeply embedded in our culture. And the understanding of the nature of man now that's really prevalent in our culture is this. There is a really beautiful, wonderful, uh, mature person 
inside of you. That's your authentic self. And maturity is learning to express that thing, whatever it is. And what we need to do for our friends and the people around us is we need to affirm that thing, whatever it is. And what the Bible says is, no, actually, the heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all else. Your heart actually is deeply broken and you are deceiving yourself if you think you can figure out who you are apart from what your creator says about you. And instead, what we feel deeply committed to doing is affirm, 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 rather than speak the truth, speak the truth, speak the truth. What James is doing here, it sounds kind of rude and abrasive, and he's right up in their face, is he's just telling them the truth. This is who you are. And he's not speaking of literal adultery. He's speaking of spiritual adultery. He's using adultery as a metaphor of a divided heart. Later, he will say to them, you are double-souled, you are double-minded, you're double-hearted, your heart is split. And that is spiritual Adultery. Because our relationship with God is designed to be an exclusive relationship. And what James is doing is he's drawing on this long prophetic history of using adultery as a metaphor for the way that we treat our relationship with God. Listen to these words in Jeremiah chapter 3. Surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so you have been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. Throughout the Old Testament, the Lord says, I'm a faithful husband and you are my bride. The Ten Commandments start like this. You shall have no other gods before me. Or you could translate it, you shall have no other gods besides me or in addition to me. Because our relationship is like a marriage relationship. It's an exclusive relationship. There are other things that you can love, but you've got to love me first and farthest above any other love that you have in your life. Your greatest loyalty has to be to me. That's the nature of this relationship. So in a week and a half, Tristy and I are going to celebrate our marriage. 27 years. March 16th, we got married 27 years ago. Thank you. So you can just put that on the postcard. Congrats on the cat. Congrats on, but wedding, marriage first, then cat, right? Because i got to have my loves appropriate. That's, that's more important, right? 27 years we've been married, and every time we celebrate it, we just kind of think back and we remember the promises that we made to one another, the vows that we made to one another. And so when we got married, uh, we, each, we wrote our own vows, and I wrote my vows to Tristy, and I said them to her on our wedding day, and I said, I promise to, to love you and to honor you and to cherish you, and I promise to only be a little bit unfaithful to you. And some of you are even feeling uncomfortable that I would even say that. Ooh, that sounds kind of slimy. You should feel really uncomfortable because that's a completely inappropriate thing to say in a wedding vow. That's not the nature of the relationship. The relationship, I make a promise that I will be completely loyal to you. That is the nature of our relationship with God. So notice how he describes it. He says, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Friendship with the world is hostility toward God. What's he talking about? He's saying the relationship with God is a relationship that's designed to be an exclusive relationship. It's like a marriage relationship. It's like a genuine friend. And in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, in that day, 
friendship meant a lot more than it does today. Honestly, that word just carried a lot more weight. I, uh, again, just dogging on social media today, but I mean, I, and so on our, my social media accounts, I have literally hundreds of friends uh, that I've barely met. I have hundreds more people that I've actually never met. You know, they reach out with a friend request, and I just go, sure, click, 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 click. Man, you know, that's great. Um, I'm validated by all these friends that I have in the world. I don't even know these people, right? But we've diminished the significance of the meaning of the word friend. Uh, in the Bible, the word friend meant someone with whom you had an intimate relationship, and it was a relationship that required loyalty to the relationship. Right? It's a relationship of loyalty and commitment to one another. So remember uh, earlier, it says uh, that Abraham was called a friend of God. How did he become the friend of God? Well, think about Abraham's history. Abraham was tested, and he was in a really tight place, and he was fearful for his life. And so he said, this beautiful woman, she's my sister. And then what happened? Well, then there was tension in the tent, right? I mean, the relationships, uh, man, that wasn't a good day for Abraham and Sarah. So many years later, Abraham was once again in this tight place, and he was fearful for his own life. What was Abraham thinking about? Just himself. Self-centered, self-absorbed, selfish. Abraham's thinking just about himself, just about himself because of his fear. He's thinking about just about himself, and he says, this beautiful woman, she's my sister. Once again, there was tension in the tent, right? It, didn't, it just didn't work out well. It created conflict because Abraham thought that he needed something other than what God had promised him and so he says she is my sister and that tension that was just inside of him comes outside it's in his relationships at that point Sarah probably wouldn't even said he's my friend he's not my friend he's my husband but he's not loyal to me he's not guarding me he's not protecting me then a few years later Abraham was in a tight place again. God said, uh, that son that I promised you that you've finally had, the son on whom all of your hopes and dreams and aspirations, all the promises that I've given you rest on that son growing up and maturing and having a family and descendants. All, everything rests on that son. I want you to go and I want you to sacrifice that son. It says Abraham got up early in the morning and he took his son and he took his fire with him and he took his wood and he went up on a mountain, the exact mountain where Jesus was right near was Jesus crucified where the temple was, same spot. Took his only son up there and he's about ready to put him to death. God intervenes and provides a, a substitute offering as he would do later with his own son. God would actually go through with crucifixion of his own son, but he brings Abraham just to that point and then he provides a sacrifice. And because of that event, remember we looked at this a couple weeks ago, he's called the friend of God. What does that mean? It means that by that point in time, Abraham's love for his God had grown to the point where he loved God more than he loved his son. He loved God more than he loved the promises. He loved God more than the hopes and the dreams and aspirations he had. He loved God more than anything else in his entire life, and he was called the friend of God. Because his heart, in a sense, had become one, no longer divided between himself and his selfish desires and longings and his love for God. His love and loyalty to God was first. Did he still love his son? Of course, but he loved his son much less than he loved his God. And he loved his son in light of his relationship with the Lord. And he became the friend of God. And what James is saying is this. Uh, if your heart is divided, you will fail. 
Okay? When uh, temptation comes, you will struggle and you will fall. Read with me verse 5. James says, or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. Now, um, this is, has been argued to be maybe the most difficult verse in the entire New Testament to translate. Is it talking about God's jealousy for us or our jealousy and longing for other things? Both principles are true. I think it's talking about uh, our jealousy and our longings deeply rooted in us. I would translate it like this. Do you think that the scripture speaks against jealousy for no reason? The spirit that God made to dwell in us has a strong desire, a strong yearning. James is reiterating the point that our hearts are divided, and if our hearts are divided, we're going to fail. When temptation comes, we're going to struggle, and we are going to fall. Because in the moment of temptation, whatever it is that you love most is going to win. You get that? In the moment of temptation, whatever it is that you love most is going to win. And if you are loving something alongside of God, God's strength and power in your life is not available to you. It's only available to you when you love him most. And so if your heart is divided, when temptation comes, you will fail. Uh, there's an interesting uh, verse right at the very end of Paul's life, 2 Timothy chapter 4. He's, he's, um, he's run his race. He's finishing his course. There's a lot of joy in the victories, but there's also some sadness and regret. And he talks about one of his coworkers, a man named Demas. He says, Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me. Right? Because he loved the world. He made himself a friend of the world. And in the moment of temptation, uh, he failed. So what do you want most? What do you want most? What do you love most? Stories told about uh, Socrates, I don't know if it's a true story or one just made up about him, but um, according to the story, there was a young man approached Socrates and said, uh, Socrates, I want knowledge. So Socrates took the young man, he said, come with me. And he took him down to the ocean, and uh, apparently Socrates was like super jacked, like the most jacked philosopher in all of history, like he was just super stout dude, right? So he takes him out into the water, young man's out in the water, and he says, tell me what you want. And the young man says, I want knowledge. And Socrates grabs him and puts him under the water, right? And then he brings him back up. He says, what do you want? And he goes, I want knowledge. Socrates puts him back under the water. He says, pulls him up and he goes, what do you want? He goes, I want wisdom. Socrates puts him under the water again, pulls him back up. What do you want? He goes, I want Knowledge and wisdom. Socrates holds him under. This time he's just holding him under and holding him under and holding him under. And then he pulls him back out. And he says, what do you want? And the young man says, I want air. Right? I just want air. I want to breathe. And Socrates says, when you want knowledge and wisdom like you want air, then you will have knowledge and wisdom. But you have to long for it more than you long for anything else. What do you long for more than anything else? The problem with us is that our hearts are divided, they're split, our affections are out of order. And God says, I want an exclusive relationship with you where I am first and foremost in your life. And if I'm first and foremost in your life, you're going to experience my grace and my healing, my power in you. What James is saying is we have a very, very big problem. We have this, this divided heart, but God has a much bigger solution, and that is his grace. Read with me in verse Six, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Here's the good news. Humble hearts restore 
our peace. Humble hearts restore our peace with God and our peace with one another. God's solution is grace. Grace, grace, greater grace, (laughs) immeasurable grace, grace that's greater than all of our sin and our brokenness. So what do we mean by grace? It's a big word around here. It's in the name of our church. What are we talking about? We're talking about God's favor towards you, his love towards you that you haven't earned, that you don't deserve, but he chooses to give it anyway because he's a gracious God. That's who he is. That's his personality. So he turns towards you in favor, so much favor, in fact, that he was willing to give what was most valuable to him and not hold back anything. He gave to you his son who removes the debt of your sin and gives you eternal life. The gospel is the most vivid illustration of God's grace towards you, rescuing you from your sin, rescuing you from death, giving you hope and meaning and purpose, God's grace in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And all that you have to do is say thank you. Right? You just say yes. You don't, you don't say, God, I, I deserve this, I earn this. Here's your part and here's my part. It's, it's all God. All that you're doing is receiving this free gift. And when you receive that free gift, God gives you freedom. Freedom. Freedom from the debt of sin. Freedom from the fear of death. You have eternal life. It is his grace, his favor freely given to you. And then having said yes, God's grace continues in the life of the Christian. Paul would say when he was struggling that the Lord told him, my grace is sufficient for you for power is perfected in weakness. That is, grace is what supplies you with power to be a transformed person, to be made in the image of Jesus Christ, to have your character reformed and your heart reunited so that you no longer sense that you're lacking and have to grasp. That's what God's grace does as he pours out his spirit in you and his spirit empowers you to love God more than you love anything else. But there's a condition as a follower of Jesus, right? Eternally secure, safe in your relationship with God, a follower of Jesus, you are a believer. There's a condition for experiencing the fullness of God's grace in your life, and that is humility. On the other hand, if you are proud, you will not experience it. Notice what he says again here. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives his grace to the humble. God is opposed to the proud. He actually can't give his grace to the proud because the proud are saying, my way. So, to be opposed means to literally to set something in order against. God says, no, we're not walking the same path. God is opposed to the proud. Do you remember the story in um, uh, the book of Joshua where Joshua is about to lead the people into the promised land? And he he comes to the edge of the river and he sees uh, this angel, an angel of the Lord. And he's got his sword drawn and I mean, he's just, he's bigger than Socrates. Like, I mean, he's just huge, just And Joshua's a little bit fearful, and he, he says to the angel, he says, are you for us or are you for our enemies? And the angel says, nope, no, I'm, I'm actually on God's side. The question is, Joshua, whose side are you on? This is God's way, and this is only God's way. Are you with him or are you against him? God is opposed to the proud. The word for proud is a fascinating word. It's a combination word of two words, a preposition and a verb. The preposition means above and the verb means to to appear. So it means to to appear above or to manifest itself above. And that Greek verb is the word, we we get the word uh, phantom, phanerao, phantom. In other words, pride is to appear above but not to really be above. It's a 
phantom. It's not reality. What does God want for you? He wants you to live in reality. He wants you to live in truth. And humility is truth. And pride is a lie. It's foolishness. Listen to his word, the Lord's words from Isaiah chapter 66. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me and where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things, thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. Uh, the Lord was speaking to the people of Israel and he says, you know, you're so wrapped up in trying to build me a new temple. Heaven's my throne and the earth is my footstool and nobody else can say that. You know, you want to build me a, a temple, but you see all this around, like, the universe? I made that. The, the gold and the silver and the stones that you're going to use for your temple? I made that. The wood you're going to use your temple? I made that. The utensils that you're going to craft and form? Well, I made that, and I made you, and I gave you the strength and engineer to do that. I made everything. What do I need from you? I don't need from you anything. I don't need from you. I didn't make you because I needed something from you. But this is the one who has an intimate relationship with me, the one who's humble, and contrite of spirit who trembles at my word. It's the exact opposite of self-exaltation, which is a lie. It is literally to lay low, which is the truth, because only God is great. There's God, and then there's the rest of us. And that's it. So James says, here's the truth, here's the reality. You're broken, deeply broken, but God's grace is greater than your brokenness, but you can only experience his grace when you're not exalting yourself, but instead you're laying low and you're receiving humbly from his hands. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives his grace to the humble. So how do we experience God's grace? Verse seven, submit therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts you double-minded, be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. So you see what, he, what James did there is humility is like uh, the two bookends. And then there are 10 commands in between. How do we live humbly? He starts with humility and he ends with humility and he shows us 10 commands that walk us through. How do we live humbly and experience God's grace in our lives. Ten commands, and I've summarized them in five ideas for you. Give in, dig in, draw near, get right, stay low. Give in, dig in, draw near, get right, stay low. Let's look at each of these. Verse 7, submit, therefore, to God. You want to live in humility before God and receive his grace? Submit, therefore, to God. To submit means, literally, to place under it's the first command. He says, place yourself under God. Place your will under God. No one can do this for you. No one can make you submit. People can subjugate you. People can oppress you. People can control you. But you have to voluntarily make a choice to submit. To submit is to voluntarily place yourself and your will under God the will of God. That's what it means to submit. The most powerful illustration of this is obviously it's when Jesus said to his father, not my will, but yours be done. Did Jesus have another desire or will 
at that moment? Yes, he did not want to go to the cross. <laughs> in his heart, there was a longing to not be beaten and whipped and have nails put through his wrists and his feet and ankles and not suffer horrifically. <laughs> he said, could you cause this cup to pass from me? Jesus wanted something else, but what he wanted more than anything else was the will of his Father. So he submitted himself to the Father, willingly. Jesus had said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down, and I take it up again. This is my choice. In other words, Jesus didn't go to his Father and say, you know what? All right, not happy about it, but I'll go to the cross, but I'm going to tell you, you're going to hear about this for eternity. <laughs> I said, I don't like it. No. He willingly chose to put his will under the will of the Father. Are you willing in every single decision of your life to put your will underneath the Father? That's what it means to walk in humility, to lay low. God is great. And we are creatures made in his image. We have dignity, but we're just men and women. And we find our life when we go low. Choose to put your will under the will of the Father. Second, uh, dig in. It says, draw near to God, oh, excuse me, submit therefore to God and resist the devil, he will flee from you. How do you resist the devil? Well, uh, it's probably important to figure out since if we resist the devil, he will flee. How do we do this? Well, remember the setting. Uh, in the book of James, these people are struggling and they're suffering. And in their suffering, they're tempted to believe that maybe God has forgotten about them or God is not good. And the solution, therefore, will be to figure out how to make life work to get their pleasures that they want on their own. And in the process, they miss out on God's best and his blessing. And so what James is saying is this. Consider it all joy. Choose to believe that God always has your best interests in mind. Don't go the way of Satan, which is I'm going to figure it out on my own. Right? Again, we talked about it last week. Back in the wilderness, Jesus is struggling. He is suffering. He's 40 days in the desert, and he doesn't have food, and he doesn't have drink. And Satan says, take the shortcut. You can meet your physical needs. You can have affirmation. You can have the kingdom. You can have all of this. And actually, it'll be better than God's way. To resist the devil means to say, nope, I'm putting my stake in the ground. I am not going Satan's way. No matter what, I choose to follow God's way. I believe that God's way is always best, no matter what. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, as Joshua said. As Job said, though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. If I'm in the valley of the shadow of death, I choose Jesus. John chapter 6, the disciple, a bunch of followers of Jesus are leaving, and he turns to his 12, and he says, where are you going to leave to? And they say, no, where else can we go? You have the words of life. Do you choose to go Jesus' way? And no other way. That's putting a stake in the ground. I will not try to figure out life and make it work on my own. I'm going to tell you, I've made that commitment. That's my life. That's what I'm choosing. I'm making a vow to you. I've made a vow to my wife. No matter what, though he slay me, I will trust in him. I don't care how dark and deep the valleys go. This is the life that I'm choosing to live for the rest of my life. That's what it means. You, you, you put a stake in the ground. You submit all of your will to, to God, his will, not your own. And you say, I will go God's way no matter what. Resist the devil. He's got nothing on you. He can do nothing if you completely committed to say, I'll do God's way. Then James says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Right? So you've 
you've declared, this is, I'm going to live under the will of God. I'm going to submit myself to him. I'm going his way and no other way. I'm not following the pattern of Satan. And now you draw near to the Lord. It says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. If you're in a time of incredible circumstances, blessings are just pouring out upon you, or if you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, or if you're in a desert for 40 days and 40 nights or 40 years, you draw near and you draw near, you draw near, you draw near when you have a quiet time that's just so warm and wonderful and you go, man, I just love Jesus. You, you draw near when you have a quiet time, you go, man, I feel as dry as a bone. I'm going to draw near. I'm going to draw. I'm going to, I'm going to cultivate an affection for Jesus above all other affections. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Then get right. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. What happens the more closely we draw to the Lord is we begin to see ourselves more clearly as well. And that brings conviction. Uh, Isaiah Chapters one through five, Isaiah is just throwing out woes like spears, just flaming spears. You know, woe to you, woe to you, woe to sinner, 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 sinner. Just throwing them out, just convicting people of sin. And then Isaiah chapter six, he comes into the presence of God and he sees God high and exalted, lofty and exalted, and God's exclusive holiness. And he says, uh oh, woe, woe is me. Whoa, 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 whoa to all of you. And then he sees God as he is, and then he sees himself as he is, and he says, whoa to woe is me, a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. I'm, I'm broken. When you draw near to God, you begin to see yourself more clearly as you are, and what God calls forth from you is, is confession. A confession means literally to say the same thing. So what God says about your brokenness and your sin, you say, yes, God, you're right, I'm wrong. You're right, I'm wrong. The heart is desperately wicked, deceitful above all else. I'm lying to myself. You're right, I confess my sin to you. It's confession, this is what he's talking about. He goes on, he says, be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Now, I don't think James is saying, this is the Christian life, be miserable forever. But what he is saying is this. Listen to the Spirit of God, and when the Spirit of God brings that conviction, don't run from it. Sit in this place where you understand the depths of your own brokenness. I would say for a lot of you probably who were raised in Christian homes and you haven't made just crazy self-destructive decisions, this is maybe even a little bit harder for you, and you've got to get to the point where you recognize, you know what, apart from the grace of God, your life would be a complete train wreck, right? You're not better than anyone else. You're equally as broken as anyone else, but God's grace in your life has guarded you and protected you, but there's a darkness in your heart that's just as dark as anyone's heart, and left to your own, apart from the Spirit of God, you would make horrible, self-destructive decisions with your life, and you'd wreck the lives of the people around you. That's how selfish we are. We just think of ourselves. It is the grace of God that overcomes that darkness. And sometimes we just have to have, to have these moments where God's Spirit is convicting us, of, convicting us of, our, of our brokenness and selfishness in general, and then also specific sins that are working their way out, uh, not just in our own hearts, but in our relationships around us. And be okay with just the sorrow and the sadness of that sin. 
This is what the Bible describes as, as repentance. Uh, James doesn't use the word repentance here, but what he's describing is repentance, which is always appropriate for followers of Jesus. In Greek, the word repentance means change your mind. Stop believing that there's life or anything good for you outside of what God offers. Change your mind. In Hebrew, the word is shuv. It means to turn. So stop believing that the world has something to offer you. And instead, turn away from what you've been chasing after, those idols of your heart, those adulterous things where you're allowing them to come alongside God or surpass God. Change your mind. Turn toward God and repent. Repent. I want you to listen to these words from Joel chapter 2. If you're taking notes and want to read this later, it's Joel chapter 2 beginning in verse 12. Yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart and with fasting, weeping, and mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. Blow a trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and the nursing infants, let the bridegroom come out of his room and the bride out of her bridal chamber and turn to the Lord and repent of your sins. Do you, do you hear the urgency in Joel's voice? He's saying, now is the moment, now is the moment to let your divided heart once again become whole and put God as the first and foremost love of your life and turn away from the false loves, the things that you think you can bring, can bring you life and repent, be restored to him because he's gracious and compassionate. He's slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and loyal love, and he wants an exclusive relationship with you. Do you sense the urgency? I don't know if you, you caught this, but the last two phrases, it says, let the bridegroom come out of his room. Let the bride come out of her bridal chamber. What he's saying is this. He says, gather the elders, gather the people, gather the children, gather the old people, gather every, everybody, absolutely. And actually, if there's somebody and it's their wedding day, tell them just put it off. The bride's getting ready. She's putting on her dress. She's putting on her makeup. She's putting on her jewels. She's getting ready for this big day. It is her big day. It is the moment. He says, just tell her it's not that important. Is it important? Yeah, but it's important here. It's not important here. It's not nearly as important as getting your heart right with the Lord, completely, completely right with the Lord. The groom who's been longing for this day as well. Maybe not the day, but he's longing for the honeymoon, right? He's longing for this day. He says, it's not that important. Set it aside and get right with God. Do you mourn forever? No, but, but you allow the Spirit to bring a depth of conviction. Because when that happens, you, you emerge with a much deeper sense of dependency upon God. You also emerge with, with a much greater sense of freedom. Because you can't fix yourself, but God can Right? And that's hopeful. A good friend of mine wrote a song uh, several years ago, Ross King, uh, it's called Clear the Stage. It's a song about repentance. He, he brings in some of these themes from Joel 2 and James chapter 4. One of the lines says this, Tell your friends this is where the party ends. 
until you're broken for your sins, you can't be social. Then seek the Lord and wait for what he has in store and know that great is your reward. So just be hopeful. As James writes, verse 10, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. Go low and he will exalt you. He'll exalt you to what? He'll exalt you to what you actually need, not what your deceitful heart has told you you need. He will exalt you to what you actually long for most, but your divided heart has distracted you from. Humble yourselves, go low before the Lord, and he will lift you up. He will exalt you. Go low, stay low. Submit to the Lord. Dig in, say, I'm all in. This is my way. Draw near. When he brings conviction, confess it. Repent, turn away from it, and then stay low. This is where you live the Christian life, right here, in complete and utter humility and dependence upon the Lord. So how do we apply this? I'm going to give you just two words to take with you uh, this week. Repent and receive. Repent and receive. Remember, repent means think about what you really believe in. Change your mind. There's nothing in this world that can actually bring you, you life. Just what God has to offer. And you lack nothing if you have him, even if you are going through really difficult times. You lack nothing if you have Jesus. Turn from what you've been chasing after to bring life. Turn and say yes. Agree with God. All that he is pointing out, all he's putting his finger on in your life that's sin. Confess it. Repent. Turn from it. And then receive his grace. We don't stay in this miserable place forever. Instead, we receive his grace and his empowerment. We recognize God's favor is poured out upon us unconditionally in Jesus. We're safe. We're secure. That creates joy and hope and peace and fulfillment, right? But both of these things go together. So I want to challenge you this week, spend some time in repentance, spend some time actively in receiving and enjoying God's grace uh, in your life. And I felt like it's appropriate uh, as one of our application points as we close, uh, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together because it's this it's this opportunity for us to um, physically uh, remind ourselves that we've received the grace of Jesus Christ. So what I'd like for you to do is if you, if you didn't get a communion cup on the way in, if you want to just raise your hand real quick. We've got some servers. We've got a couple right now in front here. And we've got one over here. So we're going to wait until everybody's served. Um, what we're actually going to do is uh, worship team's going to lead us in a song of confession. So I encourage you to do is they're leading us in the song of confession. If you, you want to sit and pray, as God examines your heart, that's fine. If you want to sit and sing along with, and let these words be the words of your confession, or if you want to stand and sing, uh, this is just time for us to prepare our hearts through confession or receiving the bread and the cup. Well, um, but let's not uh, waste the, the moment that God has provided for us, this space in which we can allow God's spirit to uh, deeply examine our hearts and say yes to everything that he says to you. Let's pray. Father, we, do, we thank you that you you give us this moment, these moments just to stop, to listen to your word. To not, to not run from what you, you speak to us. And we confess that our hearts are divided. 
we love you, but we also love the world. And what you long for from us is a relationship where you, you're first, that our, you're our highest loyalty. And so I pray that we would be willing to uh, let your spirit speak, bring conviction. And as a result, that we would experience your grace in a new and a fresh and more powerful way. In Jesus' name we pray.